The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. A sentiment shift after Wall Street's worst day since December. Futures, by the way, lower again today. But could the recent sell-off be short-lived? New data on the record dry powder that's sitting on the investing sidelines. Meanwhile, in Washington, a new debt ceiling showdown shaping up as the U.S. hits its nearly $31.5 trillion borrowing cap. A live report from D.C. coming up ahead. Plus, another domino set to fall in the ongoing crypto crisis. And then later on, Elon Musk being painted as a visionary and a liar as lawyers lay out opening statements in his quote-unquote funding secured tweet trial. It is now Thursday, January 19th, 2023. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome to the show. I'm Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan this morning. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. equity futures after Wall Street's worst day since mid-December with the Dow falling, by the way, more than 600 points, as you can kind of follow with our time lapse here throughout the course of the day. It was not looking good, and things were markedly lower yesterday. Futures right now, as I mentioned before, pointing to some extended losses again. The Dow is implied lower by just around 159 points. The S&P lower by 17, and the Nasdaq outperforming, if you want to call it that, down by only 50 implied at the opening bell. In the last two hours, we've seen things take a turn for the worse. Now, if you check the bond market overall, you can see futures now sliding towards the lows of the session right now. In the bond market, we saw a sharp move yesterday in the benchmark 10-year note yield hitting its lowest level since September. And right now, yields are lower again. The benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield now below 3.4%. 3.36 is the last trade there. Remember, we were well above 4%. Not that long ago. So people buying up the safety of U.S. government bonds, the two year note yield, 4.07 percent and the 30 year long bond right now, 3.53 percent as well. So keep an eye on that Treasury complex yields falling across the board. Now, in energy, oil prices were also earlier yesterday solidly higher, catching a bit with some optimism about China's economy, some more fuel demand forecasts coming from the IEA. Well, today, we saw a reversal yesterday. Today, we're lower again, $78.57. We were above 80 ducks at one point yesterday, down about 91 cents, over 1% decline there. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, down 83 cents, $84.15, down roughly 1% as well. And in cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ether, had been showing some real upside surprises over the course of the last couple of weeks here. It's a little bit more mixed in trading today. Bitcoin prices now below the 21,000 mark, 20,795, up about one-tenth of one percent, just about flat on the session for Ethereum prices, $1,527 and change there. Now, around the world, we've had a mixed session overnight in Asia that saw Japan fall nearly one and a half percent on the day. The Shanghai and the Kospi in South Korea both gaining about a half a percent. 
Now, Europe's trading day is just getting underway. We'll spin that globe around to the other side of things. It's pretty much losses across the entire continent. Red, as you can see there. The German DAX off by about nearly 1%, half percent declines for the FTSE 100 in the UK, and the Cat Quarant in France off about 1% as well. So again, not a lot of green on the screen in Europe. Now back on Wall Street, new data showing investors may be chomping at the bit to put some of their money to work, whatever money there is on the sidelines. The Investment Company Institute, or ICI, says a record amount of funds flowed into money market accounts at the end of last year, more than $4.8 trillion, with a T topping the previous peak during the early months of the virus pandemic back in 2020. Now, that record level of cash could potentially fuel a major rally in stocks, but some strategists do say investors may hold off since market sentiment is right now very negative and money markets are generating better returns than they have in years because of higher rates. So let's talk more about all of these cross currents with Timothy Chubb, the chief investment officer at Girard. Uh, Tim, we laid out the case here. This is interesting. We talked about the death of the 60-40 portfolio, stocks and bonds last year. All of a sudden now, bond investors look like they're doing pretty well. There seems to be almost a normality. Flight to safety, bid up treasuries, stock prices go down. Is that something that we can expect to see in the coming weeks and months as well? Yeah, I think it's really going to be a theme for the year. You know, ultimately, the market really needs to move away, you know, as, as long as the data continues to, you know, provide us evidence that we can um, from the inflation story and really talking about, you know, the decelerating growth environment. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, you look at the fixed income markets and, you know, our theme has really been, you know, long, good carry. Um, and go up in quality. And so that means more treasury exposure. It means more duration, you know, within our fixed income portfolios. But um, you really don't have to look very far, you know, in fixed income markets to find a lot of opportunity right now. Everything from the securitized side of things where, you know, you can get, you know, income that's 350 basis points over, say, an Amazon bond for a warehouse that is, you know, being leased by Amazon um, to, you know, the, the um, credit side of things, you know, both investment grade and below investment grade, where you know we certainly don't expect the fault cycles to be nearly where they were um, during prior recessions. So, uh, like I said, you know, long good carry. There's plenty out there, and these companies are in great shape from a corporate standpoint when looking at interest expense and, and their coverage of that. You know, in, in the past, when we've seen sharp moves lower, like we have in the Treasury complex, we know that there are some, you know a lot of factors at play, that the Bank of Japan was, was a big influence. Yeah. We've got recessionary fears right now. But the level that we've seen it come off in terms of yields, well north of 4% for the 10-year, now to almost like that 35 3.4% mark, that implies a lot of folks are maybe cramming for the safety of U.S. government debt guaranteed by the Treasury. Is this a sign that recession is pretty much inevitable at this point? Yeah, most definitely. You know, I think, you know, the, the dichotomy between the stock and the bond market over the last, you know, 12 months or so has been stocks have priced in a soft landing to, you know, a large extent for this year. Uh, but the bond market's priced in a hard recession. And so, I, like you said, there's definitely some flows, um, you know, you know, especially with the strength of the dollar, you know, investors coming into the United States to get those yields and the appreciation of the dollar, which was up about 12 percent last year, I think the highest in about 40 years or so. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I, I think, you know, we were probably a little overbought at this point. 
you know, if you take a look at the inflation data and, and what the Fed is projecting where Fed funds you know, needs to go, you know, sometime in the first six months of this year, and, you know, we expect them to likely, you know, pause sometime in May, um, that would imply a 10 year should be closer to three and a quarter, or excuse me, four and a quarter percent, um, you know, relative then, you know, to like you had said, you know, with the 10 year, you know, uh, inching lower, you know, than, than 3.6%. So might be a little overdone, but um, to your point, I also think it really feeds into the inflation, or excuse me, the recession narrative, uh, which, you know, again, we also, uh, expect this year. You know what the one thing a recession can do is kill inflation, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole idea here. Now, is this inflation story in your mind, is it done? Is it in the rearview mirror or are there still threats in the coming months for higher prices for consumers out there? Well, you know, I don't think there's necessarily, you know, threat of higher prices. You know, we'll start to see some of the lag effect, um, you know, especially with housing, start to flow through into the data. We've got it on the soft data side of things, but it hasn't necessarily flowed through into the hard data uh, that we're looking at. But I think the inflation picture will, you know, or at least narrative will soon change and really how – uh, the wage growth environment will likely impact corporate earnings. Corporate earnings have been unbelievably resilient. Last quarter was the first that we saw since the first in 2020, uh, where profit margins actually fell for the S&P 500. And uh, most of it's really come from just higher costs of doing business as opposed to actually coming from wage inflation. And so although we've seen wage inflation slow a little bit, uh, some more softness within the labor market, you know, the ta- challenger gray uh, data recently had showed, you know, uh, layoffs were up about 400 percent from the year prior, which is coming off a, you know extremely low base granite. Uh, but ultimately, this softening should be, you know, an encouraging sign for, for wage growth. Uh, and how that might impact, you know, corporate earnings. But, you know, I, I think now it's the reverse of what we've seen in the last uh, you know, year or so where you've been focusing on some companies um, in your portfolio that have been very exposed and have operating leverage that, you know, would benefit from a rising rate environment, inflationary environment. I think um, you really have to kind of flip the script a, a bit, you know, moving forward in 2023. Okay. And before we let you go, one quick point here in just a few moments. What exactly is your outlook for the stock market in 2023? Sure. Yeah, we're, we're cautious. You know, we think, you know, ultimately 17 times earnings is probably a fair multiple with where yields are at. And I think, you know, seeing yields in the dollar sell, you know, yields become lower, the dollar sell off this year. Uh, obviously, that's been, you know, helpful for risk assets. But I, I think that we, you know, are, are fairly wary uh, coming into this fourth quarter earnings season, we've gotten banks you know, reporting thus far, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is sort of the kitchen sink corner uh, quarter where you know companies really lower the bar for guidance for the year. Uh, ultimately, throw all the expenses into the quarter, try to get those um, you know the bar lower just so they can jump over it later in the year. So I think by the time the Fed is you know done tightening, hopefully in the May timeframe, ultimately investors will be looking at 2024 and you know what the trough should look like for the economy and ultimately the growth that may come you know from both top and bottom line in 2024. But I think it's going to be choppy until then. All right. Choppy trading. Timothy Chubb at Girard. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. All right. To Washington, D.C. and lawmakers facing yet another debt ceiling showdown today as the country hits its nearly $31.5 trillion credit limit, if you will, its borrowing limit. The Treasury is expected to take extraordinary measures to keep keep basically paying the nation's bills, but without raising the debt ceiling itself. Washington now could be on the verge of a default if a deal is not done. NBC's Bree Jackson joins us now with the current state of play. What can you tell us, Bree? Are negotiations at least progressing? Well, it's a stare off right now. Good morning, Dom. Republicans are demanding spending cuts in return for raising the debt limit. The White House says it won't negotiate and neither side wants to pay the political price of a government default. 
The U.S. is expected to max out its borrowing limit today, meaning the clock is ticking for Congress to act on raising the debt ceiling. If you're going to have a party, you have to pay the ban. If we were to default on the debt, people, the inflation rate, which they're trying to combat, would be greater than it's ever been. Experts warn defaulting would come with serious consequences, such as a recession, a stock market crash, and a stop to benefits like Social Security. The White House is pushing to avoid that by raising the debt limit with no strings attached. It means that uh, if we're even thinking about a default or playing these kinds of political games, using the debt uh, ceiling as hostage for uh, the kinds of... uh, so-called negotiations these folks are talking about. It is the pinnacle of irresponsible governance. House Republicans want to negotiate significant spending cuts. Set a budget, set a path to get us to a balanced budget, and let's start paying this debt off and make sure the future generation has as many opportunities as we do. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sent a letter to Speaker McCarthy saying her department would take extraordinary measures so the U.S. can keep up with its obligations. But that would likely only last until June, giving lawmakers a few more months to reach a deal. This is just a simple thing that Congress needs to do. They've done it over and over again. Congress has raised the debt limit 78 times since 1960. And congressional leaders in both parties recognize raising the debt limit is necessary. It's been done 49 times under Republican presidents and 29 times under Democratic presidents. Dom? Uh, Bree, can, can you take us through, you mentioned in your story that the, the, the kind of uh, deal making that's going on. What, what exactly, what type of spending cuts are Republicans proposing to, to, to try to get a deal done here? Well, Dom, so far, House Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy hasn't really given a lot of specifics on what he wants or what the party wants. Uh, But they have been divided over military spending, uh, possible cuts to military spending. And they have thrown out uh, funding for alternative fuels as well as cutting some social programs. But either way, it looks like lawmakers are going to try to hash out some type of deal uh, so that they do raise the debt limit. All right. The debt limit debate with Bree Jackson. Thank you very much for the report there. We'll see you soon. When we come back on the show here, can the Netflix rally actually hold on? Those shares, as you can see, up more than 60 percent in just the past six months as the company prepares to report its latest results after the closing bell. Plus another casualty in the ongoing crypto crisis. The latest domino set to fall. That's coming up ahead. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, you know that music. You know what it means. Earnings Central, welcome back to the show. Shares of Netflix are on a tear in recent months after getting hammered 
in the first half of 2022. They're already up, by, by the way, more than 60 percent just since April. And this all comes as the company gears up to report earnings after the closing bell today. Its first report since launching its ad-supported subscription tier back in November. But it's not all good news. Analysts are expecting Netflix to post its slowest quarterly revenue growth ever amid spending pullbacks, rising production costs, and, of course, increased streaming competition. So let's talk more about all of these with Alex Kantrowitz, big technology founder. He's also a CNBC contributor. Uh, Alex, we've been talking a lot about the Netflix story over the course of last year because of the bottoming it saw and then the massive off-to-the-races rally we've seen. But is all the good news now already priced in? Well, it's, this is going to be a crucial quarter for Netflix, right? There's, I've seen analysts' expectations go anywhere from 5.5 million ads to 2.7 million ads. The consensus is around 4.5 million new subscribers. Uh, if it beats on that high end, you could see the stock really uh, have room to continue going up. But if it misses, the, the pressure is high. Remember, this is a company that actually contracted subscribers last year. So any sign of weakness, I think, could send investors running away. It's a pretty tenuous moment for the company. And, and this is a very, very important quarter. The subs are always the key, right? I mean, Alex, you and I both know over the last several years, it's not necessarily the earnings per share beat or miss or the revenue beat or miss. It's always come down to whether or not the subscribers are what Wall Street expects what exactly does Netflix have to do to generate that growth in subscribers again, besides introducing this ad-supported tier? I think the ad-supported tier is important, right? So I uh, can't forget that. Obviously, it launched in the middle of the quarter, so we'll see. But to Netflix, again, the key is to produce good content. You're, you're right. There, we're seeing competition from Disney. We're seeing competition from Amazon. Uh, and, and it just isn't Netflix's own ballpark anymore. There's a lot more uh, teams in the league right now, and it doesn't come as, as easy as it used to be. So I think that, that the key is produce good content. No Squid Game right in Q4 this year like there was last year. Well, well, you so, know, it, so, Alex, I mean, this is a good point because it wasn't that long ago, maybe five, six, seven years ago. When, when, remember all the Oscars buzz, all the movie buzz, all the award ceremony buzz was all about Netflix produced programming. It was orange is the new black and everything else. Meanwhile, now, to your point, Amazon, Disney Plus, others have now put out a huge slate of their own award winning original content. It, does this mean now that Netflix really has to up the game at a time when they have to spend that much more for content? No doubt. And you know what really concerns me? Not only the subscriber contraction last year, but the fact that Netflix isn't going to tell us what it forecasts for subscriber growth for the next quarter. That's going away. I mean, to see that combined with the fact that you have increasing competition and the fact that you contracted uh, subscribers in a few quarters last year or in a quarter last year, uh, I, I don't think that's a good sign. I understand that they want us to focus on revenue. Fine. You know, end of password sharing, new advertising platform. That's OK. But the focus should be on limiting churn and the focus should be on growing subscribers. So when you see this signal, right, to say we're not going to tell you how many subscribers we expect to grow next quarter anymore. That to me sends alarm bells now, uh, that weren't there. Before. Now, now, Alex, you, you follow a lot of these companies in communication services, tech, media and telecom that have subscriber uh, at least programs. Right. But where, where people have to sign up and pay for things with Netflix, if can you compare them to, to others perhaps like in streaming, maybe, or Spotify or, or, or others, in terms of what you think the subscriber growth could be with advertising-supported products? Is this a game-changer for Netflix in, in the way that it could be for certain other tech companies and media companies? 
Well, the advertising uh, has gotten off to a, a tough start, according to reports. And I think that this quarter in particular is going to be great because we're finally get to hear, going to get to hear from Netflix leadership about how they're doing there. Uh, I think that every, you know, the, the key is for advertising, it's going to try, they're going to try to limit churn with it. But every different platform has their own, you know, little thing that they do on the side of streaming. Right now, Netflix is going to try to do this and, and see if it can limit churn. But for Amazon, for instance, talk about comparison, right? They don't need necessarily to be making money on each subscriber if they can drive people to retail. Uh, Disney, for instance, more brand affinity, more visits to theme park. That factors in to the calculation. For Netflix, where is that added element that you can get? If your entire business is going to be counting on doing an ad-supported tier to limit churn, I think you, you are going to have some problems. Uh, and, and it is a, a t- tough fight for Netflix, as we've seen over the past uh, few years, even though they're up, like you mentioned, 60 percent over the past few months. All right. Alex Kentrowitz of Big Technology on the Netflix trade going to earnings after the bell today. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon, Alex. Thank you, Don. All right. Still on deck for the show. A commodity price crunch hitting shares of Alcoa in a big way. Your big money movers when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your big money movers. First up are shares of Discover Financial, the credit card issuer sliding despite fourth quarter top and bottom line beats. The company reporting $3, or rather $3.73 billion in revenue compared to the $3.66 billion that analysts were expecting, though it did boost its provisions for possible credit losses compared to the prior year, potentially signaling a weaker economy ahead. Right now, those shares down about 6.5% in the pre-market trade. Next up, you've got HB Fuller. Shares are also slipping after the adhesives manufacturer missed on both earnings and revenue estimates due to a fall in demand for products. The company warning investors that it expects revenue to be flat for the fiscal year. Those shares off about 4% of the pre-market trade. And then finally, it's Alcoa. The stock dipping into negative territory after the company posted a net loss of $374 million in the fourth quarter. The aluminum maker citing challenging market conditions, higher production costs, and shakier demand. As a result, on balance, those shares off about 6% in the pre-market trade. Well, let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the latest. Good morning, Francis. Hi, Dom. Good morning. The New Mexico District Attorney will announce today if any charges will be filed in the fatal shooting that happened on the Rust film set. In 2021, actor Eric Alec Baldwin was holding a gun that fired and killed cinematographer Helena Hutchins. Baldwin has insisted he did nothing wrong. Sources have told the Los Angeles Times that prosecutors have concentrated on the individuals who handled the gun that day. The crew members involved also have denied any wrongdoing. A dangerous winter storm is marching east today after blanketing the plains. Some 27 million are under winter alerts from Wyoming to Maine. Parts of Nebraska saw more than two feet of snow. And in Colorado, some areas got more than a foot. This storm also causing dangerous driving conditions and pileups on the highway. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced she will resign next month. The 42-year-old said she no longer has enough in the tank to do the job justice. 
The Labor Party has seven days to determine whether a new leader has more than two-thirds of caucus support. And finally, a groundbreaker at Columbia. The university named Nima Shafiq as the school's new president. She will be the first woman to head up the Ivy League University when she assumes that role in July. For a Thursday, Dom, those are your headlines. We send it back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Francis Rivera, for the news headlines there. As we head out to break, let's check on shares of Hertz right now. The rental car company announcing it's teaming up with the city of Denver to build out its electric vehicle infrastructure, including adding more than 5,000 EVs to its fleet in that city and then installing public EV charging stations. Hertz says it hopes to strike similar deals with other cities around the country. Those Hertz shares, by the way, in the free market traded down about roughly 1%. We're back after this. Renewed recession worries fueling sizable market losses and more could be on the way. Futures are right now lower ahead of the opening bell. Debt ceiling deadline. The U.S. government expected to hit that key threshold today with lawmakers appearing nowhere near a deal on the matter. We are live in Washington, D.C. with the very latest there. And the crypto contagion continues. The popular publication Coindesk looking to separate itself from its parent company as it scrambles to stay afloat. Thursday, January 19th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan this Thursday morning. It's just around 5.31 a.m. Eastern time. And here is how U.S. stock futures are shaping up. As I mentioned, we are offered right now. The Dow is implied lower by just about 185 points. The S&P down by implied 22 and the Nasdaq down by just around 66. So, again, a possible down day to follow up on yesterday in markets. Now for bonds, yields are lower across the board. We are now below 3.4 percent for the benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield, currently just about 3.36%. The benchmark 2-year note yield, 4.07%, and the 30-year long bond, 3.53% there. So again, every part of the yield curve, all maturities, relatively lower compared to yesterday. Let's also hit oil prices as well. They were up markedly yesterday, only to reverse course throughout the course of the day, like the stock market. WTI crude now below $80, down 78 cents off 1%, $78.70 for U.S. benchmark prices. World benchmark ice brand crude futures down 70 cents, $84.28, roughly about three quarters of 1% decline there. Now let's get a check on some of this morning's top stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Hi, Silvana. Dom, good morning to you. Well, the trial over Elon Musk's 2018 tweets on taking Tesla private officially getting underway. Lawyers representing plaintiffs in the class action suit categorizing the Tesla CEO as a liar who callously jeopardized the savings of regular people after tweeting he had, quote, funding secured for a $72 billion buyout at the time. Musk's team countering the stock's run-up after the tweet mostly reflected investors' belief in Musk's ability to pull off stunning feeds with the company. The trial is slated to last three weeks. Coindesk is exploring a potential sale as it looks to separate itself from Barry Silbert's digital currency group. The crypto trade publication hiring advisors at Lazard for the potential move. The push for a possible sale coming in the wake of FTX's collapse as crypto lender Genesis, which is also owned by Coindesk's parent company, secures advisors for a potential bankruptcy filing. 
Souring sentiment across the industry, hitting stocks tied to crypto in a very big way. Names like Marathon Digital and Riot Platforms down big yesterday and adding to some already very steep losses in the past year. And Allstate is warning it expects to post higher catastrophe losses in its latest quarter as a result of that massive and deadly winter storm that hit a majority of the U.S. last month. The insurer said its catastrophe losses for the fourth quarter are estimated to have hit $779 million, with 80 percent of that coming from the storm. Analysts had expected that figure to be around $568 million, Dom. We heard similar things from travelers as well, yeah. and I took the stock down during that particular mm-hmm. discussion. So, Silvana, we appreciate the headlines. Thank sure you thing. very much. To Washington, D.C. now, and the developing situation around the debt ceiling. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning the U.S. would likely hit that threshold today, saying inaction by Congress could raise, it could cause irreparable harm to the U.S. economy and global financial stability as a result. But lawmakers appearing at a political impasse on the matter Ilan Moy now joins us with the very latest on where the situation stands. Ilan, how close are we? Yeah, Don, Republicans and Democrats are on a collision course over the debt ceiling, and some lawmakers are already looking for an escape hatch. Now, the Treasury Department is expected to hit its borrowing limit today and start deploying extraordinary measures in order to keep paying the nation's bills. That includes suspending reinvestment in the thrift savings plan for federal workers and pausing new investments in retirement and benefit funds for government employees. But those measures are projected to run out sometime this summer, and both parties are strategizing about what to do if the country ends up on the brink of default. House Republicans are discussing a bill that would let the Treasury Department prioritize certain payments if the debt ceiling isn't raised. I'm told that proposal was part of the agreement that conservatives struck with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and it is supposed to come up for a vote during the first quarter. Meanwhile, Democrats are floating the possibility of a discharge petition that could force the House to vote on a clean debt limit increase. But that is a very complicated and time-consuming maneuver, and it would still ultimately need at least some Republicans on board. Now, there have been a few bipartisan attempts to fix the debt limit problem over the years. One idea would be to give the president the power to raise the debt ceiling while still allowing Congress to override his decision. We are still far away from that kind of compromise, though, Dom. And the only thing that's guaranteed is that this is going to be a messy process. Back over to you. Uh, Messy, I guess we we should have expected it, given what we saw with the midterm elections and kind of what we saw with the uh, at least House speaker vote and everything else there. But there's a lot, Ilan, of talk about possibly cutting Social Security or Medicare, two of the most important entitlement programs in this country. How real are those possibilities? Yeah, so that is the third rail of American politics, right, Dom? And at least at this point, even some of the most conservative members, like a representative, Chip Roy of Texas, are saying that Medicare and Social Security will remain untouched. However, in order to make their targets for spending reductions, that means you'd have to see big cuts in other programs. They're not saying what programs those are because that could be a political liability and also perhaps because they know that none of this is going to pass the Senate where Democrats are still in control. So the question really becomes, is a conversation about spending reductions enough to appease conservatives and get them to vote to increase the debt limit once we're up against that deadline sometime this summer? 
Or do they really want to see you know, red lines all over the budget? And I think that's where you're going to see the risk for invest- investors and you know, whether or not some of these members are just uh, spewing political rhetoric. Now, Elon, now, you also mentioned in your report this idea that, that we're not really going to get this idea of a clean process or a clean bill for a debt ceiling raise without other attachments to it. Is there any discussion at all? How, how unlikely is it or how likely would it be for America and Congress to come up with something very clean to just address the debt limit itself? At this point, Republicans are saying that is simply a no-go. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said point blank, it is off the table. Now, sometimes in Washington, you need to see things fail before you can see things pass. So one potential outcome could be that the House ends up passing a plan to cut spending, to cap the budget at the levels that we saw in the past fiscal year. Um, and then it just is dead on arrival when it reaches the Senate. And so we have to find out whether or not that is really enough in order to appease Republicans or if they want to see more. All right. Uh, a continuing messy debate, as you point out, Elon. Thank you very much for that report. We'll see you soon. Coming up on the show here, a potential tax problem for Elon Musk, how his takeover of Twitter may end up costing him more than expected. But first, as we head out to break some of your top trending stories, one soccer fan paying $2.6 million to see two of the sport's greatest face-off a Saudi Arabian businessman winning an auction for a golden ticket to watch Cristiano Ronaldo's new club take on a team featuring Lionel Messi. That's a lot of money, $2.6 million. Flo Rida winning his lawsuit against Celsius Energy Drinks and being awarded more than $82 million in damages. The jury finding the company guilty of breaching an endorsement deal with the rapper and then fraudulently hiding information from him. And cat named mittens causing chaos in the world of chess. And bringing plenty of people into the game since chess.com introduced the bot with an avatar of a cute kitten at the beginning of the month. It has averaged 27.5 million games played per day and is on track for more than 850 million games this month. That's 40% more than any month in the company's history. Cat avatars. Who knew they could drive such traffic? Or what exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Some upgrades and downgrades to bring you today. Morgan Stanley is downgrading Roblox to underweight and reducing its target price on the stock to 24 bucks a share. Its previous target was $27.50. Now, Morgan Stanley says first half bookings are fully priced in and expects slower growth ahead of the second half of the year. Roblox shares right now down 6%. Now, Wolf... And J.P. Morgan naming Meta Platforms as a top pick heading into earnings season. J.P. Morgan says early checks for the fourth quarter suggest early holiday spending, ad spending, was solid and should surpass early expectations. Now, Meta Platforms is up or down about 1% here. And then Piper Sandler is cutting its target price on Tesla to 300 bucks a share from a prior 340 sticking with its overweight rating. Piper Sandler citing recent Tesla price cuts and ongoing delays over full self-driving in this morning's note. As a result, those shares are down 2.5% right now. Now to Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, proving to be a bit of a, bumper, a bumpier ride than the Tesla CEO may have initially expected. But the purchase of the social media platform and extensive time spent at its headquarters in California could result in a bigger hit on Musk's wealth. Now, here's why. Robert Frank will tell us why that 
time spent in California is such a big deal. Robert. Yeah, Dom, Elon Musk left California and its high taxes about two years ago, but now... California could come calling again because of his time at Twitter. Now, as the effective owner and CEO of Twitter, he's been spending time at the headquarters in San Francisco. We don't know exactly how many days he's been there, but California tax law says that any time spent in California providing services to a company is subject to state taxes. So if he was performing his duties as the CEO of Tesla, the CEO of SpaceX, and the CEO of Twitter while he was in San Francisco, he could be taxed by California for any compensation during that time at all three companies. California Franchise Tax Board, that's kind of the state's IRS. They could argue that because he's running a California-based company, He's also not really a Texas tax resident. California requires any visits to California to be, quote, temporary and transitory. At stake is possibly billions of dollars in potential taxes for Musk. He was awarded a $55 billion pay package back in 2018. That earns out over time. And he, of course, sold about $40 billion in Tesla stock over the past two years. Shale Shaw, he's a tax attorney at Greenberg Toreg who works with a lot of wealthy Californians. He said California could also argue that Musk planned to buy Twitter before he moved to Texas, so his tax residency should still be in California. He told me, quote, the Franchise Tax Board is especially aggressive with high-profile taxpayers. He said, quote, they will definitely be looking at this. And Dom, I know it sounds like a stretch to say that his time in San Francisco should be taxed by California, but the Franchise Tax Board is very aggressive in that state. Uh, It it happens all the time. And and Robert, because we've we've spoken a lot about this, both on camera and off, uh, the higher the so-called higher tax states, right, Uh, in places like in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, California, they're they're not likely to want to give up on some of those tax revenues generated by certainly some of the wealthier taxpayers out there. Is this then possibly a precedent center or or how much do these high tax states actually go after and and enforce some of these kind of location and 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 allocation type issues with regard to where people spend their time you're absolutely right dom they really go after the high profile cases because they can make an example of them and everyone will see look this person did not get away with simply leaving the state and coming back a lot With Musk, it takes added importance for the state of California because he probably accounts for, you know, a large percentage of the tax revenue for the past two years. I mean, again, he's, you know, just that one tax bill in 2021 was over $3 billion to the state of California. So he's high profile and it's a meaningful amount of revenue if they can get some of the revenue, not just from his stock sales, but also from this $55 billion compensation program that he's almost finished earning out this year. You almost wonder, Robert, whether or not there is kind of talk or machinations about moving Twitter's headquarters to someplace like Texas for a guy like Elon Musk. I wouldn't be surprised. Now that they've auctioned off most of the stuff, it'll be an easier move. There you go. Less stuff to haul off to a tax-effective state there. All right, Robert Frank, thank you very much for the update there. On deck for the show here, stock losses poised to continue at the opening bell. CFRA's research lays out why better days may be ahead, and Sam Stovall lays out his bullish target for the S&P 500. We've been talking all about the bearish forecast, but there's a bullish one out there. But right now, futures are near session lows. Dow implied lower by 200 points. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. Six stories you may have missed as we close in on the 6 a.m. Eastern time hour. So here we go. Shares of Discover Financial sliding on fourth quarter earnings after the firm boosted its provision for credit losses compared to the prior year, potentially signaling a weaker economy ahead. The credit card company did beat, though, on earnings and revenue. Hong Kong scrapping its mandatory quarantine for COVID-19 cases beginning January 30th. That's according to the city's leader. This after Hong Kong ended its contact tracing and vaccine pass system this month. China, though, not letting up as easily. President Xi Jinping warns of a rural threat from a potential COVID outbreak during Lunar New Year celebrations coming up, marking Xi Jinping's most direct acknowledgement of the worsening COVID crisis on the health side of things. Meanwhile, shares of HP Fuller falling after the company missed on fourth quarter earnings and revenue expectations and warned of a drop in demand for the fiscal year. Investors are holding near record levels of cash, which could be good news for stocks. According to the Investment Company Institute, total net assets and money market funds rose to $4.8 trillion during the first week of the month, beating an earlier peak of $4.7 trillion back in May of 2020. And Alcoa reporting a revenue decline of 20% due to challenging market conditions, higher production costs, and slowing demand for aluminum. Stock is also falling on a weaker forecast for the rest of the year. Those shares down about 6.5%. Now, gearing up for the trading day ahead, we've got a slew of economic data on deck, including initial jobless claims. It is a Thursday. We've also got December housing starts, December building permits, and January Philadelphia Fed manufacturing figures all out at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. On the earnings front, we get reports from Procter & Gamble, and as we mentioned before, Netflix after the closing bell, Key Corp later on today as well. Also, a number of Fed speakers today with Boston Fed President Susan Collins, Vice Chair Lael Brainerd, and New York Fed President John Williams all making speeches, and investors will get a look at the latest minutes from the European Central Bank at 7.30 a.m. Eastern time. Well, sticking with the trading day ahead, renewed recession worries are percolating. We've been talking about it for a while. It's curbing stocks run to start the new year despite mounting concerns, though. Our next guest says he is sticking with his bullish call for stocks through year end. Sam Stovall is the chief investment strategist at CFRA Research. His price target for the S&P 500 in 2023 is 4575. And by the way, that makes him the highest or most bullish on Wall Street tracking the S&P 500. Sam, thank you very much for being here. We have spent a lot of time talking about what seems as though is a consensus opinion among CEOs and even many of your peer strategists about a recession, soft or hard landing, who knows. For that reason, many of them have very bearish forecasts. Why are you so bullish? Well, good morning, Dom. First off, I would say that let's realize that the price target is a year from now or, or very close to a year from now, and a lot can happen. And traditionally, after a market decline in one calendar year, the market is up more than 80% of the time in the subsequent year, gaining by more than 14%. And I think that because of the uncertainty we're likely to be seeing in this first quarter, first half, that it'll end up being a tale of two halves where the Fed will end up tightening one more time uh, on February 1st, then hit the pause button. And then we are reminded that the Fed does tend to start cutting interest rates an average of about nine months after the last rate hike. In your models, Sam, as you kind of put your projections together, put all the data for inputs, put all the forecasts in there, 
that ultimately generate that 4575 number. What exactly stood out to you? Which of those inputs or data points or, or assumptions that you've made is driving that bullish forecast? Is it the rate side of things and valuations? Is it earnings growth? We've talked a lot about a possible earnings recession. What exactly is driving that? What, what factor is driving it the most? Well, I think that it's the uh, the magnitude of the impending recession. Uh, our expectation is it's going to be fairly mild. Certainly, I think that we will fall into one. Uh, if we look to the, the weakness that we anticipate for the first quarter of 2023 and possibly the second quarter, uh, when all is said and done, the NBER uh, might end up dating the beginning of the recession as January of 2023. But we think it'll be fairly short and fairly mild and driving all of this will likely be the Fed. Fed has already told us that they don't plan to cut interest rates this year and that we should end up being concerned that uh, that the market is not pricing properly what the Fed will be doing. But the Fed is data dependent. We continue to see the CPI, PPI, PCE, uh, the GDP chain index come down month over month. And our expectation is that the Fed will end up realizing that once it starts its pause, it will not have to restart. Now, now, Sam, uh, some of your co- I mean, I should say some of your peers at other at other firms uh, like Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley, uh, many of them have cited this idea that earnings could be showing weakness in the coming quarters, that that could be what's driving the downside forecast that they have. Can you take us through what you think the earnings picture will look like as opposed to, say, Venu Krishna at Barclays, who's got a thirty seven twenty five target or Mike Wilson at Morgan Stanley, who, by the way, was right last year. His target is 3,900. They're among the most bearish analysts on Wall Street. Why do you think that the earnings picture could hold up? Well, I do think that we are on the precipice of an earnings recession. Expectations are for a 2.9% decline in fourth quarter of 2022, a 1% decline in first quarter of 23, and then a 2.5% decline in the uh, second quarter of 2023. I'm also reminded that company management does an excellent job of managing expectations. 52 of the last 53 quarters have seen actual results exceed end of quarter estimates. So I feel that while we could end up, as your prior guest said in the first half hour, we could end up with a kitchen sink quarter where companies say, you know, investors are expecting bad news. Let's write off as much as we can for the end of of 2022. And that would set us up quite nicely for 2023. Sam, 10 seconds. You got a favorite sector for 2023? Yes. uh, You go from first to worst, meaning get out of those groups that uh, were the best performers like consumer staples and utilities gravitate toward those that were beaten up the most. So I would tend to say areas like consumer discretionary and tech. All right. That's an interesting move there. Sam Stovall, thank you very much. The bullish call, the most bullish on Wall Street. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Fox picks up the market coverage from Davos at the World Economic Forum. Coming up next, we'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.